Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be one to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Tens, twos, and tariffs. Those are the three T's. The T's that are trouble with a capital T, which rhymes with P, and it stands for deep, dark pool <laughs> that perennially threatens any rally. As we start the second half of the year, including today's rally, where the Dow gained 182 points, as we advanced 0.86%. NASDAQ climbed 1.12%. Yep, we're drowning in this pool of tens and twos and tires. And this market may not deserve a life raft, even as the bulls got a sweet reprieve today. Bye, bye, bye! So on a great day for the market, why don't I explain to you what so many commentators, pundits, and money managers are wringing their hands about, obsessing about, so you can understand their nonstop tale of woe and put it in a perspective that can help you make some money. First, we need to address the tens and twos, something that may be a lot less frightening than you think, but sure sounds real scary. Right now, you get 2.55% interest if you buy a two-year piece of paper, as they call it, or two-year notes, the more retail way of saying it. If you buy 10-year treasuries, you get 2.83%. Jeez, that's not a very big difference, is it? This small or tight spread is highly unusual. Normally, when the two years are 2.5%, I, I don't know, I would expect the 10-year to be at 3.5%. But right now, even 30-year Treasury bonds are only paying out 2.95%, which to me is lunacy, downright crazy. Lock up your money for an extra 20 years, and you get a whopping uh, handful of extra basis points? I know the bond market puts people to sleep. Wake up! This stuff's important. The United States is the biggest bond market in the world, far larger than our stock market. Now, when I got to Goldman Sachs in 1983, I was chiefly interested in stocks, but the firm was chiefly interested in bonds. So I went with the chiefs. At first, I didn't understand the obsession with bonds. I mean, what is it? This is boring and interesting, blah, blah, blah. But I was working with rich people and institutions. They always bought tons of bonds because, well, the institutions were conservative. Rich people, you only need to get rich once. Both groups like treasuries because they're considered risk-free since they're backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Stop being so cynical. That's a heck of a lot better than, say, bonds backed by the government of Italy, where I just came from. Bonds talk. They say things, and not in tongues. I learned to speak the language at Goldman. They had fabulous translators. Trust me on this. So here's what bonds are saying right now. They're saying that with the two-year treasury so close in yield to the 10-year treasury, twos and tens, twos and tens, twos and tens, we're almost experiencing a flat yield curve. Whoa, scary. That matters. Because when you have a flat yield curve, well, it does usually presage a recession. It's a sign that investors are worried about the future. It's true. I mean, I wish it weren't true. I wish I could dismiss it. I wish I could say the 10-year should be much higher, so don't ignore it. Can't ignore it. 
All right, what would send us over the edge then? If the Federal Reserve were to raise rates again too soon, it's possible that the two-year Treasury would indeed yield the same return as the 10-year. And judging by the just-released Fed minutes today, they're going to stick by their desire to raise twice more this year. You're going to hear recession screamed all over the place if we get those rate hikes. And the 10-year doesn't start yielding more. That has to start happening. Plus, banks can't make as much money on loans if long-term rates refuse to go higher. They have to end up paying you more for your deposits. So let's go full circle. Bonds are screaming, and keep this in mind on a big up day. We're about to go into recession if the Fed keeps raising rates and banks. About a fifth of the S&P 500 can't make much money on their core business. Lending, hence why the defense stock, defensive stocks, not the defense stocks, they're awful. The defensive stocks are acting so well. Now, before you dismiss me uh, and say this is all paranoid delusion, consider that the stocks of the banks and the home builders have been performing horrendously of late. Many are down huge off their highs. Make sense? Well, no, not right now if you look at their business. Right now, banks are making tons of money. Home builders are crushing it thanks to a housing shortage, lots of pricing flexibility, cheap mortgage money. Nevertheless, the so-called hedge fund playbook, what they all use, tells big-time money managers that they must sell these stocks right here. Housing punches well above its weight. Even though it's about 10% of the U.S. economy, there's so many companies involved with housing, they're all feeling it. And while the banks almost universally got a clean bill of health from the Fed just last week, the bond market is telling money managers, sell, sell, sell. And that's exactly what they're doing. It's a real problem. Financials are the most important group in the market because banks are the lifeblood of the economy. When they go down, I expect the rest of the market to follow. That's been the case until today. Well, uh, today was a rarity, right? Uh, A total rarity. And I have to tell you, I think this is just a relief rally after being down so long. Only some major selling of 10-year Treasury, something I do not expect, or a pause from the Fed on rate hikes, something I don't expect, would improve this picture. I wish the Chinese and the Fed would just sell their trillions of dollars in longer-term U.S. treasuries. That would do the job, but neither has shown any inclination to do so. All right, how about the the third team? Boy, this one, uh, I I, I don't know. I know you're tired of hearing about it, but I don't care. Tariffs. Tomorrow, the first of the tariffs against the Chinese go through, and you can expect China to retaliate immediately. Initially, they're going to retaliate against farmers, but I figure we'll just write the farmers a check. Isn't that what we do? Right? I mean, it's country that's kind of run by farmers in some ways because they have a lot of powerful electoral college stuff. Trust me, write a check to them. A- anyway, let's not worry too much because the world's chronically short of foodstuffs, and we've got it. So the real issue is hostility, and we see that all over the map with China. The PRC has held up Qualcomm's acquisition of NXP Semi. They just uh, apparently banned sales of Micron's DRAM semiconductors, hence the stock's recent decline. They have the ability to start boycotts of pretty much anything, Starbucks coffee, Yum Ch- uh, China's Kentucky Fried Chicken, even Apple, despite the fact that Apple's one of China's biggest employers. We import about five times from China what they import from us. So they have a lot more risk than we do, especially with the Chinese stock market looking like it's falling apart. But we have stock market risk ourselves, and our industrials have been acting horrendously because of what I just described. Gets worse. The real trouble now may be tariffs on cars aimed at the export-happy Germans. Right now, they they have much higher tariffs on our cars in Europe than we have on theirs. Well, that's wrong. This rally today was in large part because of a talk about a deal to lower tariffs for everyone, the so-called zero-tariff approach President Trump wants. Unfortunately, we don't even know if the deal is possible, but the market sure acted like it is. Our so-called trading partners, especially Germany, have shown a real reluctance to level the playing field. Again, they have much more to lose than we do. However, the playbook for the big institutions that run money in this country is quite clear. In a trade war, you sell all the industrials, particularly anything related to autos, which are the chief trade battleground. So uh, that group and all its myriad suppliers have become millstones around the market's neck. Now let's put the whole thing together, the three Gs. Because of the twos and tens, you aren't supposed to own anything connected with housing or the banks. Because of the trade war, you aren't supposed to own anything connected with the industrials, including techs and the autos. What does it leave us? 
Well, you can own small cap stocks that have nothing to do with international uh, trade, but thrive when employment is strong in this country. But that's that's a dead horse. It's been beaten to death every day. That still happens. You can long in the tooth. You can own the stocks of companies that don't need global growth, mainly the healthcare place. Normally, I'd recommend the consumer packaged goods companies. Some of them are doing better today, but remember, they're going to report earnings, and when they do, the stocks go down. Today was a rare reprieve from what's working and what's not. Because I don't expect the Fed to stop raising rates, large sellers of bonds to materialize, or President Trump to change his mind about tariffs, regardless of collateral damage to the stock market, I got to temper my bullishness. And I came back from vacation just fired up to be bullish, but you know. Can't let, gotta let the facts get in the way of the story. Bottom line, there's just not enough of the market that can go higher on a sustained basis right now. And until things change, take days like today as a gift, not the norm. Enjoy any strength while you can, meaning sell something in case things go back to the way they were 48 hours ago. Marshall in Vermont. Marshall! Hey, Jim, this is Marshall calling from Burlington, Vermont. How are I, you? I am good, Marshall. How about you? I'm doing well. So my question is related to American Airlines. I bought into the stock back in May, and the stock is down about 20% since then. Uh, with rising oil prices and Deutsche Bank's recent downgrade, I'm looking for some uh, advice on whether I should get out or buy more. No, no, way too late to get out. No, way too late. It's down 27%. Now, I, 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 please do not sell here. Understand that they've already pretty much told you the quarter isn't any good. If oil goes down, and I don't know, it's a bit of a push here, then that stock is going to bounce. I, I can't count in selling that stock down here, but I have to tell you, I could say the same thing about all the airlines. They're all down too much. But do I, am I telling you to buy it? Hard. Kevin in Massachusetts. Kevin! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Jim, I was watching your show a few weeks ago, and I loved your analysis of the industrial sector. Thank you. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it's due for a rally on any good news involving trade. And I'd like to know if you think that AO Smith ticker AOS is a good place to be if and when an industrial rebound takes place. Well, you know, the if and when is is the is the really really difficult thing um, because if if it, if it happens, the, you know, the, a stock like AOS is going to just completely take off. Uh, it does have some overseas exposure, and it, it's got a lot of China exposure. Uh, but if it doesn't happen, the stock's going to go lower. And the thing that I hate to ever come on the show and equivocate. But I just cannot tell you what the heck is going to happen with us in China. I just can't. I would be un- it would be untruthful for anyone, including the president of the United States, to be able to tell us what's going to happen to us in China. Bob in New York. Bob. Hi, Jim. Now that Erwin Simon is stepping down at Haines Celestial, how will this affect the company and the stockholders as Erwin was so good at building the organic category? Okay, so this morning I'm getting a birthday present there with my daughter. I got to take a bag in. So I grab a bag underneath the sink and what did it turn out to be Haines Celestial bag? And I say to myself, Erwin out. Doesn't that mean the company's for sale? But then I say, well, wait a second. They're going to pick a new guy. They pick a new guy. The stock's going to go down. Who would buy this company? The answer is we don't even know. So my take is, and I'm, I can't believe I thought about this at 3.30 in the morning. It's just nuts. You and I are in like a mind melt. It's a Vulcan mind melt. I am not going to recommend Hain because as far as I'm concerned, I've got PepsiCo, which is going to, I think, report a great quarter. And that's my mind melt with you. Curb your enthusiasm. Nice repeat today, right? But we need to have more good. Don't forget the twos, the tens, the tariffs, the triple T's. Oh, man, money tonight. Some things are constant in this market, even when you might not want them to be. I'll take a bite into the stocks that have sustained this tape for ages. 
We coined a name. Do you know what it is? It's an acronym. Then, so far in 2018, 120 companies have used IPOs to raise $35.2 billion on U.S. exchanges. Tonight, I'm telling you which newly minted companies could be winners for your pro and, and which ones are losers. And with the economy firing all cylinders, what does paychecks need to do to get its stock moving in a positive direction? I'm going to sit down with a CEO. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. Better to be lucky than good. And you know what the four luckiest stocks in this market are? Bang. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, now Alphabet. These names have sustained this market for ages. At times, they've been wounded. Other times, they've been pronounced dead, only to rise up, Lazarus-like, to crush the very authors of those obituaries. They have wiped out billions in value for smart hedge funds that repeatedly bet against them. Sell, sell, sell. What explains the resilience? What's allowed the FANG stocks to once again break away from the rest of tech and roar higher, which is what happened last week while I was on vacation? First, every big-time money manager is laser-focused on the trade war with China. Whether or not standing up to the Chinese will work in the long run, in the near term, money managers will run from anything with Chinese exposure in any way, shape, or form. If a company gets a substantial part of its growth from China, and many industrials have tried their best to do so, investors, well, they'll sell it nine ways to Sunday. But in one of the great coincidences in stock market history, Fang's got nothing in China. And I got to tell you, it is pure coincidence. Facebook's blocked in China. They had too much free speech, too much potential for stirring social unrest. Social media is no friend of dictatorships. As for Amazon, China's got no use for them. They already got Alibaba. Jeff Bezos may be the world's richest and most powerful capitalist, but he's a real nobody in China. The Communist Party wants it that way. There's not much he can do about it. Netflix is one of the easiest websites to use on Earth, but not in China, where it's effectively blocked. Instead, they have IQIYI, the Chinese Netflix. More on them later. Sure, there are ways to get around the country's official blocking of Netflix, uh, which one time, by the way, had high hopes of making China a huge market. But it's since acknowledged, well, ain't going to happen. Alphabet has taken itself out of China by choice. The company that owns Google has this thing about free speech and censorship. And they literally leave billions on the table... As a matter of principle, although management doesn't get much credit for the scruples, instead it's viewed like Facebook as some sort of pernicious big brother figure. Still, Alphabet's lack of China exposure right now makes it a better stock than if it had China as a major market. Ironic, isn't it? Who knew having principles could be so profitable? All four are accidentally anti-Chinese stocks, and that is perfect for this market. 
Second commonality, they all have secular growth, growth that doesn't slow down with the global economy. When you listen to most of the experts talk about President Trump's trade policy, they make it sound like it's going to cause a worldwide slowdown. A lot of hedge fund managers agree. Even people who approve of the tariffs, like me, acknowledge it could be some short-term disruption. But FANG is largely immune to economic activity. Really, sensitivity, not that much here. Sure, there's advertising risk, but the rush to advertise on Facebook and Alphabet's YouTube is so pronounced that the economic impact is muted. It's magazines, newspapers, radio, and television that suffer far more, as the Internet has proven to be a channel that must be reckoned with. Facebook and Alphabet are basically carving up this business between themselves. Twitter's taking a few nibbles. I still like that stuff. What else? Inflation's on a lot of people's minds these days. Some of it's commodity inflation caused by both tariffs and shortages from a stronger-than-anticipated economy. Some of it's uh, business freight costs. Some of it's because of freight costs. Uh, They've gone up. And, of course, oil's gotten much more expensive year over year. If you're going to design four large companies that would be relatively immune to inflation, they look a lot like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet. Again, there are reasons for the resilience, and inflation immunity is one of them. Oh, yes, Amazon has some freight risk, but it's so big. It has the bargaining power that every other retailer just dreams about. Finally, the Fed doesn't matter to Fang. Today, the market took a momentary dive when the Fed's minutes came out from last month, minutes that showed they're a little less worried about a slowdown from the tariff issues than many, including me, would like possibility of the Fed being a bit oblivious to trade war could be bad for business, but not for Fang's business. Now let's dig down them individually to see what I'm talking about. This morning, an analyst at BTIG pushed Facebook hard, using a $275 price target for this $198 stock. Stocks zoomed. Why? What was the thesis? They said business is accelerating at Instagram, 1 billion users per day, and they very recently started Instagram stories representing over 400 million. Remember when that initiative was regarded as a stopgap defense against the juggernaut that was Snap? After I read the piece, I thought to Facebook, which is constantly being bashed in the mainstream media, should just go and change its name to Instagram. Especially because no younger person seems to want to be on anything else. Even after this run, including a more than 12% gain this year, BTIG claims the stock is selling at a perfectly reasonable 24 times next year's earnings. That isn't that expensive versus, say, some of these, like, you know, Kellogg's and Clorox's and stuff. Yep, as I told you, uh, I always hesitate because no one believes me. Facebook's cheap. Stock's cheap. I go for a week away for one week. One week. And what happens? Amazon shells out a billion bucks to buy PillPack, internet pharmacy startup. Periodically, we've heard that Amazon wants to be in the pharmacy business, but we didn't know how or what it would look like. Well, the company was at one time supposed to register state by state. Nah, they dropped that initiative. Ah, PillPack's much better. This acquisition crushed the pharmacy stocks last week, especially Walgreens, which also reported a pretty nasty quarter. Amazon with its stock up 45% for the year. 45% for this. It'll be a formidable competitor in the pharmacy business. Oh, let's not forget. Prime Day's coming. July 16th and 17th. Gonna be Prime Day. 36 hours of deals that I'm sure will be staggeringly successful. Don't you dare bother my wife during those 36 hours. On second thought, please bother her. Get me? Netflix, which has given you a staggering 107% gain this year, is experimenting in Europe with a higher-priced product for ultra-high-definition programming. Who knows it will take off? However, it's a reminder that Netflix never stops innovating, and if the company believes it has pricing power, then it has pricing power. There's a reason Alphabet's only up 8% for the year, far below the rest of Fang. Every few days, it seems to get hit with something negative. Yep, Alphabet gets poked quite a bit. Like the Republican lawmaker today who called for the FTC to look into Google's anti-competitive conduct. Plus, the COO of Google Cloud, Diane Bryant, just left last week after a very short seven months. She had a long story career at Intel. Eh, that's not the kind of news I'm looking for. 
Still, most companies would kill for Alphabet's panoply of businesses. It's got a ton of cash, lots of opportunities, simply hasn't monetized them yet. So here's the fang for once again exciting and enthralling and defying all of the negatives to charge ever higher. Bottom line, I know nothing lasts forever. And it's easy to see why these FANG stocks are reviled for being too high, too fast, too rich, too whatever. But that's been the case ever since we coined the term five years ago. Who knows? Maybe we'll be the same five years hence. What for Mad Money had an IPO market that was left for dead just two years ago has come roaring back to life this year. I'm pointing out the winners of the IPO class of 2018 and the ones you should be buying. Then Paychex has been a long-term winner, and with record levels of employment, the stock should be soaring. But after last week's somewhat disappointing results for the analysts, at least, what's ahead for the company? I'm going to talk with the CEO. And does good news mean bad news in the markets? I'm spotting the contortions of negativity that seem to be sweeping through the stock market, even on a good day like today. So stick with Kramer. This market's been flooded with a lot of red-hot IPOs. But in the last few weeks, at least until today, these stocks have begun to cool. Companies keep coming public to great acclaim, and their stocks surge higher right out of the gate before getting slammed. So tonight, I want to catch you up on what's been happening in this red-hot IPO market. Now, a few weeks ago, I warned you that many of the newly public enterprise software stocks had gotten way overheated. They'd all have monster moves. They'd become incredibly expensive on sales, on er, no earnings, of course. Since then, we've had a broader sell-off in tech that's hit these recent software IPOs particularly hard. Just since that segment, less than three weeks ago, Carbon Black and Zora are down 28%. DocuSign and Pivotal Software are down 15%. Zscaler, the best performer, has lost only 10%. Love to say, told you so. Really, these stocks are victims of a double sell-off, the tech pullback, and then a broader IPO pullback that, until this session, has been hitting new issues across multiple sectors. Still, even after this recent round of profit-taking, the numbers, frankly, they're staggering. In the first quarter, we got 44 deals that raised a total of $15.5 billion. Second quarter, we got 60 deals, $13 billion raised. All told, this is the highest IPO volume since 2012. In fact, in just the first quarter alone, we saw more than a billion dollars-plus deals than we've gotten in all of last year. That's right, that many billion-dollar-plus deals. A lot of that's from tech, where we've seen roughly 10 times as many deals as we got in 2016, almost double last year. But what matters to us is that these deals have been making people a lot of money. The average IPO gave you a 9% gain in the first quarter, even as the border market got slammed. And in the second quarter, the average IPO gave you a a stunning 29% gain. That's incredible. People are lapping this stuff up. Now, that's not necessarily a good thing ultimately, though. Remember, at the end of the day, the stock market is still a market. And markets are all about supply and demand, whether it be about stocks, food, copper. It doesn't matter. Too much new supply causes prices to go down. We got a huge sell-off in the cloud-based software stocks a few years ago for precisely this reason. Nothing had gone wrong. There was just a deluge of similar IPOs. I don't think we're there yet. But you know, I've got my eyes peeled on this in order to be able to try to protect you because, boy, when they go down. What else do we need to be wary of with these new issues? For one, there's been a ton of private equity-backed IPOs, about 25% of the total so far this year. The most recent being BJ's Wholesale Club, which just came public late last month at $17 and has climbed to $23 and change after pulling back a bit today. We always need to be extra cautious with these private equity-backed deals, meaning that a private equity company is uh, coming public with a a deal that they bought previously, uh, hopefully at a profit, 
See, they produce plenty of winners, but the truth is PE guys tend to be pretty ruthless. So you also get plenty of duds, loser companies that these firms just want to offload to the public in order to get rid of them. They'll give you a good one and a bad one. We don't want the bad one. Now, there's been a bunch of biotech deals, too. In fact, roughly a third of last quarter's IPOs were biotech. Now, these have been very hit or miss, which is par for the course with this industry. Hey, you've got Armo Biosciences. Now, get this. This is a fabulous story. Came public in January at 17 bucks. Traded up to 28 on its first day. And then got acquired in May for 50 bucks a share. Total home run. But for every uh, Armo, there's another biotech that can lose three quarters of its value in a day because of one bad clinical trial. So you got to be really careful with biotech, which is why I always tell you to be selective when you speculate with these early stage drug developers and try to buy the stocks of those with multiple drugs and trials, hopefully some nearer to completion than others. Then, all right, this one is it's hard to get your arms around your head around whatever because of what's going on with Trump and, and, and China. But you know what? There have been a, a plethora of Chinese IPOs. Even in the midst of the trade tensions with the People's Republic, China-based companies keep coming public here. And their stocks have been roaring. I mean, talk about ironic. Many of these names, though, dubious quality. There's one you see all the time on that crawl at the bottom. That I see it every morning. It's really cool. It's called IQIYI. IQIYI. Let's just call it IQ for all you home gamers. This has been billed as the Chinese Netflix Here's a stock that surged from the low 20s in late May to as high as 46 in mid-June. But in the past few weeks, the skeptics have been coming out of the woodwork, and IQ's gotten slammed down to 31 after t- taking yet another beating today. My view? Hey, who wouldn't be intrigued by the Chinese Netflix? But this kind of stock is very difficult to value, and I think it needs to cool off more before it's worth even considering. And remember, Netflix kind of closed out of China, so there is a little room for IQ. Then, and then you got Billy Billy. That's B-I-L-I. It's another Chinese online entertainment provider. Billy Billy came public the day before IQIYI in March. Initially, it didn't get much traction, but then it caught fire when the analysts started recommending it in May and June. Stock climbed to $22 at its peak, but in the last few weeks, it's round-tripped all the way back to 13 bucks. Actually, slightly below that. Now, this is why I'm leery of the fresh-faced Chinese IPOs. These names are too hard to get your head around and too hard to follow closely. Even if you're willing to put in the time and do the research, I am always stopped on the street and asked about Chinese IPOs. And I always say the same thing. Listen, I got Alibaba. I don't need this. Alibaba's been under a lot of pressure. I still like it. The best of times, I am hesitant to recommend all but a handful of Chinese companies. This is not the best of times. They're caught in a trade war with the most powerful country on Earth. Remember, it's us. So which IPOs from the class of 2018 do we actually like? All right. Now, I've mentioned them before, uh, but they're worth repeating. First, there's Dropbox, the cloud-based storage and business collaboration play. I recommended Dropbox at 28 on the night it came public. It surged to 42, and now it's back to 31. I like it at these levels. Just like so many other recent IPOs, Dropbox had an explosive rally in June, followed by a brutal sell-off on no particular news. But the story remains the same. Dropbox is a fabulous play on the subscription economy with a huge pool of free users who, uh, who they can convert into paying customers. Second, there's Spotify. Technically, the streaming music service didn't have an IPO. Its stock got listed via this really weird process. It was basically an anti-IPO. I think it really hurt the cause. Spotify is an amazingly transparent non-promotional management team. The results so far have been terrific. And while the stock has pulled back a bit from its recent highs, it started to roar again. Up nearly eight bucks today. 
Then there's Zora, and that's Z-U-O-R-A, the cloud-based software company that helps other businesses set up subscription services. Remember, this is a subscription economy now. A few weeks ago, I told you to ring the register on, on, on this one. Stock had gotten overheated. Well, and now it's come down 28%. Time to start looking at it again. If you like this story like I do, I recommend buying a bit here and then waiting for more weakness to slowly build up your position on the way down. But here's the bottom line. Even with the recent downturn in newly minted IPOs, the market for IPOs is red hot. And these big deals, they're going to keep coming. So be careful. While some of these stocks are worth owning, Dropbox, Spotify, Zora, many others are either not that good or simply have gotten way, way, way too expensive. The next time some fresh face IPO catches fire, think about all the recent turmoil and remember to take profits rather than letting your gains ride at least on a portion of your position, especially if you can get close to playing, my favorite way, playing with the house's money. Carolyn in Florida, Carolyn. Love your show and especially the name of your dog, NVIDIA. NVIDIA looked great. My dog was great today. Special treats when I get home. What's going on? (laughs) Since Cedro went into Chapter 11 and stocks holders really lost almost all their investments, Cedro now has reconstructed their stock, and it's almost like an IPO, but of course it's not. Would you invest in this stock again now or just move on? No, I would move on. I mean, I think this thing, I know it looks red hot, but you know what? My Chapel Trust owns Schlumberger, which is like 10 times the company of this and isn't doing a lot. So why not buy Schlumberger betting it's going to be really cheap on 2019 earnings? That's my play for you. Much better than the one you mentioned. And we're going to Esther in New Jersey. Esther. Hi, Jim. Hey, Esther. Uh, I'm, I'm a speech language pathologist, and I created an app called Junganu, a herd of sounds. I'm interested in creating the rest of the series to help children learn their sounds. So I've done some research to see about running my apps on a better platform. I heard Pivotal Software recently went public and shot up. I wanted to know how you feel about uh, Pivotal Software stands alongside its competitors. Well, I, look, I, I can't really address necessarily yours, but I do think the world of Pivotal, I think it's an extraordinarily good company. I should have focused on it. The CEO is someone I've met for many, many years ago. It is absolutely terrific. I would buy the stock of Pivotal. Sometimes it's IPO. No, some of these newly minted companies are just not worth owning. Stay cautious. They moved up too much. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with the CEO of Paychex, which hasn't moved up enough. What does one of the largest payroll operations have to say about the current economic environment? Where's hot? Where's not? I'm going to go one on one with the CEO to find out. Then McCormick, Herman Miller, KB Home all reported strong numbers, but it has the negativity gotten them down. I'm giving them giving you my take on an update. So don't get mad at me because I'm giving these guys a beat down. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stick with Kramer. Just because something should be happening, well, it doesn't mean it will happen. Consider the case of Paychex, P-A-Y-X, the second largest payroll processor in America with a side business and outsourced human resources. Paychex should be blowing the numbers in this far. I mean, they should be just killing it. But uh, they're doing fine, not great, at least according to the analysts, who never seem satisfied with this winning stock. As a payroll processor, Paychex makes more money when employment is strong, and the current employment situation is insanely good. At the same time, when clients hand over their payroll money to Paychex, they collect interest on it for a short period of time, which means the 
company gets more profitable as the Fed raises rates. Yet its stock is basically flat for the year. Paychex just reported last week, and while the company delivered a revenue beat, its earnings were only in line. Guidance was robust, but not enough to prevent the stock from selling off before bouncing right back. So what's going on here? Let's take a closer look with Marty Musi. Marty is the president and CEO of Paychex. To get a better sense of how it's doing, where it's Mr. Bucci, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. Okay, Marty, uh, we just got to get right at this. Uh, I was surprised. There was this little bit of guidance decline from 3% to 2 to 3%. Everything else was fabulous. It's just that the analyst then keyed on that. What are we supposed to do here, Marty? Well, look, Jim, I think we had a solid year. We certainly ended up very strong in the in the fourth quarter. We've got great momentum from a sales perspective. That's what we said going into our new fiscal year here this month. So we ended up with a solid 7% revenue growth on the top line and great earnings per share growth, double-digit growth. So I, I'm not sure. You know, we just continue to produce good results, and let's see what happens. I mean, to me, the, the situation that tells me why things are good is the change you made in the dividend. I thought that that was incredibly important that you did it ahead of time. We did. We did it a quarter ahead of time than we normally do, and 12% increase in the dividend, which is higher than we normally have it. You know, we're paying out 80% of our net income in dividends and continue to do so. Now, you also are spending, and to a lot of people on Wall Street, spending's a curse. Yep. To me, when I see paycheck spending, what that says to me is you are setting up for 2019 being a very big year because of both employment and job creation. That's exactly right. You know, when we, when we got the benefit from tax reform, because we're a very profitable business, we gave a lot back to shareholders, the large proportion, but we also took some of that and are accelerating our product development investment to make sure that we have the best products out there for our clients and are jumping ahead of our competition. Now, you, you particularly called out some a very interesting thing. I didn't really understand this. Uh, well, I, I, I think I do, but I don't want to. You talked about the idea of outsourcing HR, that people are worried about harassment that they don't know how to deal with harassment. Can you explain that more? Because to me, that strikes home as something that people can't do internally because they don't know how to handle it. Well, that's very true. What we're seeing is this is the very high topic of concern for small businesses in particular who don't have that full HR support. And our service, HR outsourcing and our PEO business, provide that HR support. And one of the biggest issues they're worried about these days is because of the risk how do they handle uh, harassment? How, what kind of policy should they have in place? And, and how do they deal with it when somebody does complain? So we're really hearing this a lot. And, you know, we have over 500 HR specialists around the country helping our clients. We're serving over a million worksite employees across the country. So that's the top topic of concern right now. It's incredible, but I think it's, well, it's part of society and people don't know how to handle it. Let's talk in general about the economy. Uh, to me, you always give us a pretty good read on what areas are doing well, what areas uh, uh, are you seeing new businesses and who's doing uh, what areas are doing the hiring and what kinds of companies? Well, we're seeing the South from a region perspective, the South still having the best job growth, even though it's down a little bit from last year. The South is still the strongest and it's you know, construction and uh, other services, those are still strong in the South. And I think construction is still recovering from the hurricanes from last fall, you know, roof repairs, landscaping, things like that. The West is having the highest wage increase, but they have the most minimum wage increases, but they're having the slowest growth uh, from year over year. And then from a sector perspective, uh, we're seeing actually manufacturing up from a low point and other services in leisure and hospitality are still the top job givers 
but they are down from last year. Overall, we saw a slight downtick in job growth and a slight downtick in wage growth under two and a half percent annual wage increase which was surprising to us. Well, how can that be? I mean, for instance, you have to be thinking it with employment as, as tight as it is. I know you talk about that with recruiting that you guys are doing, which is another great service that you provide. Yeah. But employment as tight as it is, uh, it, people should be emboldened to start new businesses. They see business great. That's not happening? Is it just uh, there are other, th- other forces at work? Well, you're right. The optimism, the NFIB index, the optimism is very high. But I think when it comes to wage increases and what we found from our clients and further uh, surveying was that 65 percent said they weren't making enough profit to raise wages. So they're trying to do other things. They're making other investments. Uh, They're hiring part time or contingent workforce to try to fill in. I think there's still this concern about if I increase wages, will I be able to roll that back? Instead, can I somehow make sure that I'm going to have solid sales and growing profits in the future? Wow. Well, I got to tell you, it's going to happen sooner or later because I know that you wouldn't be hiring if we didn't see it happening. And you've really done a remarkable job. Once again, the analysts better get on board. It's you and me. We caught a double so far. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marty Musi, president and Jim. CEO of Paychecks. Look, 3% yield, great growth. Just buy it. It is time! It's time for the light round! Play buzz about rapper girls! Why don't you say the light round's over. Are you ready? Skate down and for the light round! Play buzz over John in Virginia. John! Booyah, Jim. Shake Shack has been my best stock this year. Back in May, you said it was overpriced, but recently it's been knocking on $70 a share. Is it time for me to sell, or does this no, stock No, after that last grow? quarter, remember, I said, okay, it's time. It's finally, finally valued in a correct way. Realistic. Let's go to Carrie in New Mexico. Carrie! Thank you for all you do, for Mr. Kramer, to thank, help out the oh, Thank you for saying that. Out here. Thank you. Um, my question is in regards to Jack Henry and Associates, ticker JKHY. That is a fabulous a service company, and people don't talk about it enough. We should do a piece. Memo to Ben and my team. We should do a piece, Jack Henry. You got a great idea there. Joseph in Pennsylvania. Joseph. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Buy yourself, Kraft Foods, KHC. You know what? This stock is making a move. The defenses are making a move. I wish I had called the bottom 57. I did not do that, but I think you can get up to 70 before you have to sell. Let's go to Corey in New York. Corey. Hey, Jim. Corey from Oceanside, New York. Oh, yeah. Uh, First-time caller, long-time fan. There you go. What do you think of the stock GBT? Back from vacation, and the man stumps me big time. I do not know GBT, but I will certainly do some work on it and come back to you. How about you? I mean, that's Philadelphia Action speaking. You in Indiana. You. Hey, booyah. Booyah. Thank you, Mr. Kramer. Thank you. I'm just calling in to see what you think about KMI. All right, KMI is making a move. There's no denying that. I like Enbridge, but even more than that, I like Magellan Midstream, MMP, because they need those pipelines. But KMI is making a move. I am in no, I'm not in denial. I see it happening. Let's go to Rick in New York. Rick! Hey, Jim, welcome back. Let me oh, tell you, the you, show man. is the same without you. It's really yeah, so much insight Very and kind. humor and class. I really appreciate it. Thank welcome you. back. Thank so, Jim, my, 
My stock tonight is FedEx symbol. Your stock is a stock I want to buy right here. The stock shouldn't be down. Let me give you a twofer. I think Adobe shouldn't be down. FedEx and Adobe. Why? Random. But those were two companies that reported that went down. And if I just felt all week, I felt all last week. When I come back, I'm talking about. Let's go to Paul in California. Paul. Hey, Jim Kramer. This Yo. is Paul. Hey, I, I'm, I'm always fun to listen to you. You know, you're always full of energy. Um, hey, I called you before and I've done some research and I know you recommended the stock before um, and, and I've been doing some research and, and I hear nothing but good things about this company as far as the internet and things like that. And the company is called BlackBerry QNX or BlackBerry. Yes, yes, it's got intellectual property in cash. I know people seem to give it up on it. They give up on it and then they come right back and I think they're going to come right back. I'm going to Harry in New York. Harry. Hey, Jim. Great job, man. We love Thank AMC. You. Thank you, partner. What's up? Um, let's see. MPC, Marathon oh, Petroleum Oh, man, now, it's tough because Valero's great. It's tough because PSX today, someone really pushed that hard. I think it was Goldman Sachs. But Marathon P has been my favorite because it's pulled back, and I think it's a buy. Oh, no, that's it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, included on the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. The contortions of negativity are painful, and they are everywhere, even if they were obscured today by a wave of buying. It doesn't matter if you're on a first-class blowout conference call like we got from McCormick in the present day, the Spice Company, or the shockingly strong report from furniture maker Herman Miller, or the colossal surprise by KB Home. The questions and the calls are the same. When is it going to end? When are things going to roll over? When is it all going to come to a screeching, horrendous halt? Throwing everybody to the mercy of the bears. And I could just as easily pick a whole host of other companies. The, ni- the nihilistic negativity on the GE breakup call, replete with multiple questions about how there's simply no way the debt is going to go down the way CEO John Flannery says. It's like the guy just fell off a turnip truck or something. The endless persecution of Arnold Donald for his soft guy down at Carnival. Even as it made all the sense in the world when you consider the eruption of fuel prices and the random wildness of the dollar. Yet none of these facts seem to matter. It's all shadow boxing against an enemy that can't be seen, felt, or understood, even as it's taken control of the hearts and minds of the analyst community on Wall Street and their acolytes in the media. The idea that there must be something going very wrong or the market would be up much more than it is... Some of the analyst musings on these calls are breathtakingly pessimistic. After McCormick blew away the numbers in large part because of its much derided acquisition last year of Frank's and French's mustard that now is panning out beautifully, the analyst hectored the bold CEO Lawrence Curzius about the firm's seemingly tenuous relations with number one client Walmart or its share loss at Kroger. Share loss, by the way, that isn't even true. The $4.2 billion acquisition of Wreck-It Ben Keyser's food group has been stellar. It's almost ignored by these people. To some degree, I get it. I was openly critical about the deal when it happened. Uh, so much for so little, I decried. Uh, classic overpay. But then Curzius came to Englewood Cliffs right here and walked me through how French has just needed better management to regain control of the yellow part of the mustard aisle. And Frank's, well, Frank's is the hottest subcategory out there because millennials really do put that stuff on anything. But the analysts, oh, they aren't buying it. They're far more worried about early signs of disruption in McCormick's spice business, the canary in the coal mine thing again. Thank heavens the analysts can't hear each other's questions, or else uh, all they do is nothing but say, oh, is this the proverbial canary in the coal mine? They stopped using canaries 30 years ago, except on conference calls. 
Or how about the inanity of this KB home called the National Home Builder? Uh, they got an outrageously huge $2.2 billion backlog, best quarter in a decade, lots of margin expansion, and price increases that stick everywhere. It didn't matter. The litany of negativity was, was everywhere. It was a bizarre volley for serve Q&A. Aren't wages skyrocketing? No, they're a little higher than last year, but price increases are offsetting them handily. But if you're putting through price increases, isn't demand going to soften? Actually, no. If anything, it's accelerating because we didn't have enough homes to meet demand. Well, how about the big commodity increases? Uh, They may have peaked already. Higher mortgage rates? No pushback yet from buyers. Flagging pricing in California? Where? Tell us where. We aren't seeing anywhere. Uh, We just wish we had more land to build in California. Aggressive lending sign of a peak? Actually loan to value pretty low historically. Finally, what seemed like a fit of peak, CEO Jeff Mesger, who's really been around, smart fella, just blurted out what I know so many of us must have been thinking. Quote, I can't think of a single market today where I would say there are signs that the consumer can't afford it or that pricing has hit the wall. End quote. I'll take that as a positive. You know who put it best, though, after these terrible, terrible, pernicious back and forth questions that signified that these analysts believe in nothing? was the CEO of Herman Miller after a truly legendary quarter for the maker of the iconic Aeron chair. He speaks for all of Main Street, not Wall Street, but Main Street, when he says, while we are nervous about all the political things going on around the globe and the tariffs, all those things that certainly make you cautious, but he adds, we have no signs that the business is backing up at all in the face of those things. Business continues to look quite strong today, end quote. Again, though, it doesn't matter. This market's operating under the assumption that if it isn't negative, it isn't true. With the exception of today, that defines this moment. And it's a discouraging moment indeed. Stick with Kramer. I'm not supposed to say I miss work, but I missed work. What can I say? Okay, look, let's not get greedy here. The banks still don't act well. We're still worried about trade tensions. But the one good thing is at least tech caught a bid. But remember, what really drives tech? It's the anti-China. It's fang. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.